Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. The five Central Asian presidents have concluded their summit with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. This was the first ever summit of just the Central Asian and Chinese leaders, and it comes as all six countries are fine-tuning and reassessing their foreign policies to cope with the political fallout from Russia's war in Ukraine. What does this summit tell us about Central Asian Chinese relations some 16 months after Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine? To discuss all this, I am joined by Giulia Shirati, postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Trento in Italy. Her research mainly focuses on instrumental use of memory and culture and diplomacy, particularly in China's relations with Central Asian countries. And Tamura Marov, a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and at the OSC Academy in Bishkek. Thank you both for joining me. And Julia, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell us, you know, you've spent a long time looking at Central Asia through the prism of China. You, you deal with China uh, often. How did the Chinese view their relations with Central Asia? And if possible, can you break that up into how the Chinese government views Central Asia and how the Chinese people, what, what they might know about Central Asia? So, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation today. This is quite a, a complex, but I would say timely question. I think that one aspect that might seem like simplistic, but it's actually still core in the relation between China and Central Asia, and especially how China views this relation is through the lens of the fact that Central Asia is one of China's most stable neighborhoods. And I'll explain this. It's one of the few neighborhoods that were in China has no uh, territorial insecurities. All the borders have been settled long ago. And this idea of having this pure border in this sense from China's view, it's something that is still central into how relations with Central Asian countries are still seen. Of course, a second aspect that is quite central when we think about when what, what China sees when China looks at Central Asia is the fact that the priorities of engagement has not cha- have not changed throughout the years extensively. Central Asia for China is still a big energy hub, a very important energy hub, and still remains so given China's still heavy industrialization process. And at the same time, China is really looking at Central Asia uh, somewhat from the lens of Central Asia as being an important, as I was saying, energy hub, an important, uh, as I was saying, stable bordering neighboring region, but also a region that in a sense requires quite a, uh, for China to look closely towards the, the region itself, because as if you if you look at the literature and uh, how political documents in China have been looking at Central Asia, you will see that there's still a, a lot of stress towards domestic instabilities in Central Asia, which is something that has been at the forefront of all the engagement that China has been uh, uh, promoting throughout the years. It's always been through the lens of how this region that has its own political grievances at the the inside can be, in a sense, stabilized and how that should be done. Of course, the the two the two lenses, so to speak, the neighborhood lens, these the energy, the stability angle, so to say. It's something that China has been pursuing, in a sense, when relating to, to Central Asia and especially to Central Asian elites. 
I believe that one of the core, I would say, uh, means through which China still looks at Central Asian countries is by looking at Central Asian political elites, which are the main frameworks, I would say, of the how interaction between China and Central Asia has been have been unfolding recently, but also throughout uh, ever since modern China, Central Asia emerged. And one, I would say, aspect that China, in especially in the last ten years of the engagement since the Belt Road Initiative has been increasingly taken into consideration when thinking about Central Asia is this sort of detachment in between what is the perception of China from the part of Central Asian political elites, which is generally quite positive, especially with certain Central Asian countries like Kazakhstan, but also the difference, the, I would say, divergence in the way that China has been perceived throughout Central Asia by Central Asian, the Central Asian public. It's not my story to tell, probably, about the, the issue of xenophobia in Central Asia. I think that many scholars, many experts have been discussing that quite extensively. And it is actually quite present still today. The issue of xenophobia is one that China has been studying quite a lot, especially through in the context of Central Asian in Central Asian countries and the Central Asia public. Uh, it's something that has been at the center of China's efforts to build better public diplomacy approaches towards Central Asia, the Central Asia region, and again in an effort better to present the country itself, China itself, to Central Asian audiences. Of course, I think that one last uh, aspect that is quite important to remember when thinking about what China sees when China looks at Central Asia is the fact, especially in the current international environment with the war in Ukraine, is the fact, and I think that the summit in Xi'an these days has been quite a show for that, quite a glorious show in a sense, is the fact that the good relations, these stable borders, these neighborhood with which China has these very friendly relations overall, it's a chance for China to actually polish its image with the post-Soviet space. Uh, after a lot of uh, insecurity with regards to China's position towards the war in Ukraine and China's position towards uh, Russia's revisionism. And I think that the fact that, especially during the summit today, this small part of Xi Jinping's speech was actually devoted and remembering China's support in general to Central Asian countries and specifically also the mention towards China's support towards the uh, maintenance of the independence of Central Asian countries. This is not completely new. We've seen this in uh, recent discourses that she has stated authored in the context of Central Asia, but definitely this is something that it's quite telling about the role that China wanna present, not exclusively to Central Asian countries, but in general to its post-Soviet partners. Let me just ask a quick follow-up question, if I could. Um, when you've been in China, um, did the, how much media coverage did they devote to Central Asia? I mean, is it? I assume it's not on TV or in the newspapers very much. And and the people you encounter, do they? What do they know about Central Asia, or or are they busy with other topics? 
Well, uh, Daphne Santelesia is not well known through to the Chinese public. Of course, uh, there is much more knowledge of Central Asian countries and especially, especially uh, Central Asian people, uh, depending on, uh, of course, the location where you are in China. And neighboring Chinese provinces and regions know better Central Asia as a, as a whole. But in general, I would say that Central Asia is not at the top of the media coverage. Although one aspect that has become clear to me by looking at uh, how major events have been portrayed in the Chinese media, uh, one aspect that is clear is that Central Asia gets covered when something happens in Central Asia. For instance, the protests in Kazakhstan and the grievances from the presidential elections in uh, Kyrgyzstan has been highly covered throughout the Chinese media. Interestingly, is the fact that there are often pieces that not only cover, of course, instabilities, but also exchanges at uh, the diplomatic level. For instance, the Xi'an uh, summit has had quite some heavy coverage from the People's Daily. Also, the strategic use of certain images, which Xi Jinping basically shook in hands with all the Central Asian leaders being present within the publication. Uh, so also some sort of uh, visuality that actually shows China engaging with all the Central Asian countries. That is quite, I would say, interesting. But for thinking about the Chinese public, one aspect that I think is very interesting to pinpoint and highlight is the fact that uh, when Central Asia, even at these times, especially at this time, is presented, there, it also comes from stories of Central Asian nation, nationals that have something to do or are doing something with China. I'm making an example, uh, Central Asian nationals that live in China, work in China, success story in a sense of the cooperation between the Central Asian public and uh, the Chinese public, a sort of a story of integration between uh, China and uh, Central Asian countries. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, Timur, let's get the flip side of this. Uh, you know, what do you see from when Central Asia, when the governments look at China and when the people look at China, what do they see? What, what's the relationship? Hey, Bruce, thank you for having me. I think that from Central Asian point of view, it's, it's great that uh, you uh, differentiate it uh, between the governments and the society because these two groups of uh, people have different opinions about China. From the governmental point of view, relationship with China is vital because it's the biggest, second biggest maybe partner for Central Asia, second most influential partner after Russia. And um, the cooperation with China creates this very necessary alternative for Central Asia when it comes to its positioning in international relations. Uh, but from the society point of view, it's not um, so straightforward. Uh, people have many different opinions. There are polls from Central Asian Barometer that show that uh, the closer you get to the Chinese border, the more anti-Chinese um, sentiment you have in Central Asia. In Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, many are skeptically looking at uh, their political elites getting closer to China uh, because of the 
um, you know, existing uh, narratives of uh, China's presence in the region and because of the uh, sometimes uh, misunderstanding or even fake news in local media etc. And I think uh, in Kyrgyzstan as well, many people are discussing what is uh, the main goal of Sadr Japarath's visit to Xi'an and uh, what he want to get. Everyone talks about the amount of Kyrgyzstan's debt towards um, China. So it's it's different for for the people and for uh, the governments. Okay, thank you. Um, you know, as I mentioned at the start, this this comes, of course, as Russia's ha- uh, facing serious challenges because of its ill-advised campaign in in Ukraine at the moment. What does an event like a summit in Xi'an say? I mean, here's you know, China and all the five Central Asian countries are partners of Russia, but they're, yet they're holding this separate meeting together. Uh, is there? Do you see a message? Is there a message there to the international community to Russia? I'll start with you, Timur. Um, to be honest, I don't think that China wants to kind of wink towards um, the Kremlin and saying that, hey, um, we're replacing you here. Um, I, I think it's an oversimplification of uh, the presence of uh, different countries, different actors in Central Asia. Um, On the one hand, on the other, I think we, in many cases, underestimate the level of cooperation that exists between Moscow and Beijing. Just during his uh, visit to uh, Moscow in March, President Xi Jinping has signed joint statement with Vladimir Putin, where the two countries um, said uh, out loud that they are uh, going to cooperate in Central Asia and prevent Central Asian countries from importing color revolutions. So um, I think that uh, with the war in Ukraine, it's the, you know, the relationship of Moscow and Beijing or uh, the actions of uh, Moscow and Beijing in Central Asia, they did not collide, but rather for for these two countries, it's bec- it became obvious that they have to coordinate their actions um, even better. And um, to be honest, I don't think that um, Central Asia has some kind of a limited amount of uh, partnerships that it can have uh, for Central Asian countries. Uh, you know, it's it will be a, um, a kind of a catastrophic scenario where they will have different countries fighting for their interests in the region. Uh, The success of foreign policies of Central Asian countries would be to see cooperation on their land uh, by many different states. And in this regard, I don't think that they are, um, in a way, replacing Russia by China, but rather um, kind of um, getting closer with both of the uh, political regimes, because as 2022 has shown, Central Asia didn't really drift away from Russia. We saw a lot of uh, diplomatic um, connections between Central Asian leaders and Vladimir Putin. And uh, just a week before the summit that we're talking about, all five Central Asian countries together went to May 9th parade on the Red Square in Moscow. Um, So I think it's it's um, oversimplification of saying that uh, one country is replacing the other. Uh, the real picture is much more nuanced. 
Okay, thank you. Um, Julia, I, I'm curious, and you know, you you said at the start that um, you know, there China is happy that it has relations with Central Asia for one thing because it's a stable neighbor, and and that's not true of many other of China's other neighbors. Now we we throw Russia into the mix, where we're you know, people are already speculating how Russia, the Russian government's going to end up coming out of this, and they might be kind of shaky too. Does that give a, an even new uh, an added value to China's relationship with Central Asia? I mean, you know that. That Central Asia now, because Russia, the situation in Russia is unclear. Is China? Do they see Central Asia even as more as a more valuable par- partners than they did in the past? And Afghanistan too, of course. Well, thank you, thank you very much for the the question. It's very, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. But first of all, China sees Central Asia, you know through these secured borders, right? So it's stable because from from China's viewpoint, there are these secure borders and China doesn't have to worry about settling these borders because it's done, it's done deal. So that's one less uh, worry for the Chinese government. I think though that despite the instability coming from, if we want to call it like that, it might be a little bit simplistic, but coming from Russia and the situation of Russia still do not impact uh, as a, a major factor what the way that China interacts with Central Asia and especially the strategic uh, uh, value that, that Central Asia has for China. I do believe that uh, since uh, the inception of Xi Jinping, the neighborhood, Chinese neighborhood, has acquired much more importance. This is something that a lot of forums that and a lot of publications from the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government has shown us throughout the years. And Central Asia has absolutely become quite prominent into the foreign policy priorities of China, disregarding Russia itself. Absolutely, I think that Afghanistan makes a difference. In fact, in my opinion, one thing that we are seeing these days is the fact that if uh, the uh, this idea of looking and worrying about Central Asia stability, domestic stability in the region came with considerations with with regards to Xinjiang, and that was quite paramount. These days, this uh, of course, factors to this element still remains, but I think that the Afghan question has become even more prominent for China's consideration. And you can see this cooperation that China has been establishing in the domain of law enforcement, for instance, and uh, these collaborations, this financing of joint training with uh, Central, Asia, its Central Asian neighbors, especially Tajikistan, with its, uh, uh, I would say, very important position with regards to Afghanistan and, uh, and China in between the two countries. And I think also that just to take a broader angle on this, I've read a lot of articles written on the Xi'an summit and how, uh, in a sense, sumptuous this summit has been with a lot of, you know, uh, also mm, quite shows and uh, a lot of activities uh, that has been that have been surrounding the summit. And I think that this was quite something that should have been expected because the this is the first time that this summit has actually taken place in person and given the importance and the frequent in-person relations that uh, has been occurring in between Xi Jinping and Central Asian leaders these days, that was quite interesting and quite, I would say, normal to see such a spectacle into this Xi'an summit, also in the way that 
it has been communicated to domestic and foreign audiences. One last thing is the fact that uh, only the, if we think about the fact that this summit was actually held in uh, Xi'an, who, which might have been, from an outside point of view, quite a, a non-conventional, non-conventional choice for a important institutional summit. But this is actually quite symbolic because from the Chinese viewpoint, Xi'an is the starting point of the entire ancient Silk Road. And actually this idea of this particular city has been at the forefront of how China has been engaging with Central Asian audiences and how China has been seeing its relation through uh, and communicating its relations to Central Asia. Therefore, I do believe that despite the changing international system, what we see is actually quite a steady way into which and a steady approach from from China towards its Central Asian neighbors. Okay. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Just a quick reminder that my guests today are Timur Umarov, a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and at the OSC Academy in Bishkek, and Julia Sciorati, a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Trento in Italy, and her research mainly focuses on the instrumental use of memory and culture and diplomacy, particularly in China's relations with Central Asian countries. Um, Julia, I'll come back to you. What, What Was there anything about the the summit today, any of the agreements prior to that that, that you thought were particularly important, something that, that really shot off the page at you when you read it or you heard about it and you thought, wow, that's a, a change. Anything? Actually, yes. Uh, maybe it's not co- exclusively related to, to the agreement itself, but it's more related to the speech that Xi Jinping gave throughout the summit. And one thing that was really striking to me was the fact that uh, to the rhetoric focusing on the Belt and Road Initiative, which has been a very prominent theme through which uh, China, at least uh, discursively at the institutional level, have been communi- has been communicated with, uh, with Central Asia, is the fact that we see all this rhetoric accompanying the Belt and Road and this focus towards these new initiatives that China have been uh, promoting during the last two years. So the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, and especially the Global Civilization Initiative. And I think that this might be maybe, this might seem something very small, but this is actually quite interesting to see because it really shows the prominence of these initiatives as a new way from, for China to redefine, in a sense, what has been the wide variety of projects, of agreements, of uh, interactions that have been unfolding in the last 10 years within the BRI framework. And the fact that in if you look at Xi's speech, you, you will see that in three consecutive paragraphs, when he touches upon three different aspects of relations between China and Central Asian nations, he actually mentions these three initiatives in together with certain aspects of the BRI. That is particularly striking, especially because of the, I would say, ties that the, the BRI and how the BRI has been presented to Central Asian audiences since its inception. That really makes a point for this new way that China has has been promoting into how to look and how to interact with its partners. In this sense, 
uh, if, if the the main point, I would say, of the political communication of the BRI in Central Asia has been really tied to this idea that of the continuity between the ancient Silk Road and the Belt Road Initiative, there's always been this use of this shared uh, memory that Central Asian nations and China uh, rely on. And the fact that this is in a sense, a slightly transitioning towards these more global initiatives really tells us something about how China intends to communicate its strategy, its diplomacy in uh, uh, for the for the future. Uh, doing this with Central Asian nations, with the Belt Road Initiative, we all know has been launched in Kazakhstan, uh, has been promoted through this uh, Silk Road uh, idea. I believe this is quite quite striking and I was quite surprised to see that much emphasis in the in the discourse because it really signals in my opinion quite a change into how China's policies, China's strategies has have been promoted so far. I think that one other all the other aspects I would say of, of the agreements, at least from my opinion in what I've been studying in the past five years, it's something that it's quite, I would say, consistent with uh, China's approaches towards uh, the region, but in general towards its uh, its partners and its neighbors. But this particular use of this more global dynamic, uh, this inclusion of China-Central Asia relations into these more global initiatives, into these different, I would say, domains which are strategically very, very important. I think it's something that really places the relations between China and Central Asian nations in, uh, that he put it in different terms, in, in a sense, not abandoning, but still uh, adding something to the very well-known uh, theme of the brotherhood through the ancient Silk Road and putting the relation towards in a new dimension, in a more global dimension. Okay, thank you. Uh, tomorrow. Uh, do you, anything do you see at Xi'an today or yesterday uh, that that surprised you? I would agree uh, with uh, Julia on the discourse power that uh, China has in Central Asia. This is also something that I'm uh, following all of those uh, global security development civilization initiatives are something that China pushes um, in Central Asia and uh, Central Asian countries uh, sign on, under those um, initiatives and also the community of shared future narrative is also something that everyone agrees upon, whatever that means. Um, but I was um, also uh, following uh, the question of uh, Xinjiang. And um, in this regard, Kyrgyzstan surprised me. It was the only country that in its joint statement uh, with uh, China uh, said it kind of supports China's policy of uh, cultural diversity and um, freedom of religion of all ethnicities in Xinjiang uh, and uh, supports all of the measures that are taken by the PRC to uh, secure uh, safety and stability development of Xinjiang. So it was... Um, uh, something that, you know, on the one hand, 
understandable from the uh, point of view of China, why China would want anyone to uh, support what it's doing uh, the, in, in Xinjiang. Uh, but on the other hand, for uh, Kyrgyzstan, it is a tricky question considering that uh, many people in Kyrgyzstan protest against uh, China and uh, many of those protests were fueled by the news uh, from Xinjiang. And I, I would say that this is something that I, I don't see to be uh, very happily understood um, by the uh, Kyrgyz society. Other than that, also, all five Central Asian countries supported all efforts to peaceful unification with uh, Taiwan. Uh, it is also something that is not um, you know, surprising and not something that we haven't seen before, but uh, just another example of how China's uh, discourse power in uh, Central Asia is being uh, cemented in a way. And, um, you know, other than that, I, I was also following what Uzbekistan uh, would be discussing with the uh, Chinese partners. And, of course, uh, Shavkat Mirziyoyev was uh, talking about Chinese experience of uh, poverty alleviation and uh, fighting against corruption um, as an interesting and very good example and how Uzbekistan is implementing those Chinese know-how and mechanisms on its own territory. So uh, I think these are the new trends uh, that will be important in the nearest future. Okay, uh, thanks. And, and I just want to get your thoughts on, you know, what the Central Asians are coming away with from this summit, right? Uh, you know, of course, they were in Moscow 10 days ago, but that was just, you know, the Victory Day Parade, and they came back and it was the end of it. But uh, there was a lot of deals that were announced uh, ahead of the summit today, um, that Kazakhstan would increase its oil exports to China to 20 million tons a year, that, you know, again, mention of the Chinese, Kyrgyz, Uzbekistan railway, uh, the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank is going to give Tajikistan a half a billion dollars for the Rogun Dam. You know, I mean, it's just seemed Turkmenistan seems to be the only country that came away with pretty much nothing. But, uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? It, it, it kind of shows, you know, there's been a series of these Central Asian five plus one, and you can fill in the blank who is who's the one, India or Japan or South Korea. But this this seems to be, you know, they, they can come home and say we were at the summit and look at what we got. How do you what do you think about that, Timur? Yeah, I think uh, that part of the summit was very much expected because almost all uh, visits of Central Asian leaders to China end up uh, with um, a lot of uh, new memorandums and documents being signed uh, with the Chinese counterparts. Central Asian leaders love meeting uh, Chinese businessmen and uh, Chinese state companies and private or so-so um, private uh, companies. And uh, this is something that is already kind of a tradition that uh, when Central Asian leader comes back from China, um, he brings uh, with him a pack package of uh, documents. But And I think that um, um, all of the uh, projects that you um, already mentioned are some, you know, all, all of them were uh, already in the air. It's, it's not something that came um, out of nowhere during the summit, uh, but, but rather a continuation of uh, Chinese you know, economic presence in uh, Central Asia. And we will see more of those um, in the you know, 
in, in the future. Uh, so uh, this trend line is uh, something of a uh, constant um, trend that uh, that I uh, don't think would change in the upcoming future. And the trade will be also growing. So 2022 was, uh, you know, the record year for China and Central Asian trade. Uh, they uh, together traded for almost $70 billion, which is quite impressive for uh, Central Asian countries. And um, I think in, in this regard, uh, there will be a, a continuation of that. In the future, but the big question is whether those memorandums and those agreements that have been signed uh, during the summit will actually be implemented, or we will see the same uh, situation as with the railway railway from China to Uzbekistan through Kyrgyzstan, or Line D, uh, or other projects that uh, China promised or Central Asian countries agreed upon, but in the end ended up nowhere. Okay, thanks. Uh, Julia, uh, just for perspective on this, um, since you watch China all the time, when, when foreign leaders come to China, is it pretty common to announce these, the, you know, especially when they come from countries uh, with the socioeconomic condition standards of Central Asia? Is it pretty common for the Chinese government to announce these kind of big deals with them too, countries in Africa, South America, any place like that? Well, I would say that generally when... These amount of leaders go to to China in these sort of frameworks. I mean, when I see this framework of China dialoguing with all the Central Asian countries, always so what comes to mind is always the Forum on China Africa Cooperation, and I think that there is something there into how FOCAC has been developed throughout the years is quite uh, more ancient than, of course, the Central Asia, uh, the China Central Asia framework. But I do think that there are some sim- similarities there. So when FOCAC uh, occurs, when uh, these sort of multilateral meetings occur, we always expect big deals. Although I would say that Central Asia, in this sense, has been special this this time. And I think that almost everybody got a birthday gift for Tokayev's birthday from China, all Central Asian nations this time. And I think that this is something that was actually expected and has been announced for by uh, the Chinese government for for days now. So we were all expecting something quite big. But I also think that this shows the the fact that China is well aware of the national interest of these countries and this uh, idea of what these countries need, what these countries want from China. And so, at least symbolically, all of these agreements actually give Central Asian countries what they want. And I do agree with Timur. I think that the big question here is whether these MOUs, these agreements, will actually turn into something real into will actually uh, return some practical advantages for Central Asian countries. Uh, they also help like every kind of summit like this with, uh, you know, China dialoguing with an entire region. Uh, this actually also shows, you know, gives a good images, image for, for China to other audiences that find itself socioeconomically close to what Central Asia represents. And in a sense, 
this makes uh, China definitely more attractive to a lot of uh, partner countries from of the developing world. Absolutely. Although I would stress again that I do believe that this particular summit has been quite over the top, not just in the term of discourse or images, but also for the amount of deals, amount of uh, agreements that have been signed. And this really feeds into everything that China has been saying and doing about Central Asia in the past couple of years, really trying to transmit, to convey this image of Central Asia as being special. And I think that the Xi'an summit has been particularly uh, working particularly well to, to this aim. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, and uh, give, if either of you want to say something that I didn't cover that you think is important, uh, now's your opportunity. If I may, one just one last thing that I would like to, to say about the, the Xi'an summit and what has been stressed is, although we, we always discuss when, especially when we look at China and Central Asia, and it's important to do so, but I think in, we should also consider other areas of cooperation because we always dis, discuss infrastructure, and that's absolutely central. But I think that one aspect that we, was really underlined, at least from the Chinese part, was the, the role of culture and cultural collaborations. And I do expect some more interaction and some more, I would say, activities that uh, from the part of China in this domain. And especially one thing that was quite interesting to me was the fact that culture and cultural interaction between China and Central Asia have been portrayed in, in this case as like promoter, in a sense, of the, the two countries. So really pinpointing towards the importance of civil society and interaction at the cultural level. Also, in such institutional and highly political meetings. So I think that one aspect that one really will that we will really need to to look at is how these promises and this stress on culture will actually unfold in practice. I do expect, for instance, more cultural collaborations in the domain of archaeology or in big projects like the shared heritage that China has with Central Asian countries. They already had some prior examples of successful applications to the UNESCO World Heritage List. And that also means money actually to the, the participants and not just uh, prestige and not just uh, preservation of these cultural sites. And this also means a deeper engagement rooted into a shared and material history between China and Central Asia, which is quite central throughout all diplomacy and especially how China has been developing its own diplomacy with Central Asian countries, but also other countries along the Silk Road. So the fact that this cultural aspect has been quite prominent throughout the uh, what has been said during the the summit. I think it's quite interesting to to look at and to look how that will unfold in the future. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, and Timur, if you you have any last comments, something I didn't touch on that you want to mention? Yeah. The only thing that I wanted to also mention is that in a couple of months we most possibly will be also once again discussing uh, China and Central Asia because the third forum of Belt and Road is going to be 
uh, held and all five Central Asian leaders are invited and uh, will be again in China on on that forum. And I'm afraid that we, not we in particular, but many people who follow uh, what's going on in China and Central Asia uh, would again stress um, or highlight uh, that uh, China is kind of replacing someone in Central Asia uh, but in reality, it, it's not what's happening. In reality, it's Central Asian countries securing their uh, diverse ties with the world. And um, it's, it's Central Asian countries who decide uh, what to do and what not to do. Um, yeah. Excellent. That's a great note to end the program on. And it is time to end the program. So thank you, Julia and Timur. And a big thank you, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjolis podcast producer in Washington, D.C., and a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjolis podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.